Hello and welcome to another episode of Justice Rising, a podcast where we explore how we can work towards liberation, healing, and transformation one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Samantha Yannity. On this week's episode, I sit down with Sister Tracy Moran and we talk about what true company means on the border. Tracy Horan is a sister of Providence of St. Mary of the Woods, Indiana, and Associate Director of Education and Advocacy for the Kino Border Initiative in Nogales, Sonora, and Arizona, where she has lived and worked since 2019. Sister Tracy has ministered with Latinx migrant communities in a variety of contexts for over a decade. She previously worked as a teacher and then a community organizer with a focus on voting access deportation defense court accompaniment with migrants and detangling ICE from law enforcement. Sister Tracy recently celebrated seven years as a religious sister. Thanks for joining us. Can you explain where you are exactly and, and what do you do with the Kino Border Initiative? Sure. So I am living here in Nogales, Sonora, Mexico, and I work with the Kino Border Initiative. So we're a binational Catholic organization um, with offices both on the U.S. and Mexico side, and we work toward just humane immigration reform so that migrants can go through a dignified process. And we do that through a few different ways, through humanitarian aid and through advocacy research and education. My role is as associate director of education and advocacy. And so I I help oversee some of our educational programming. And I also work to lift up migrant voices and really try to bring the stories that we hear every day into the realms of advocacy so that we can make real change based on what we're seeing and hearing here at the border. What brought you into this work, this uh, particular call? I would say, in general, when I think about my journey to justice work, I'm aware that as a woman in the Catholic Church, as a woman in general, from a young age, feeling that my voice, I just couldn't speak as freely as my as boys that were in my classes. I learned that me trying hard in class and answering questions and those kinds of things. It wasn't cool for a girl to do. And so I think there's been for me a sense for a long time about this desire to be able to show up freely and show up as myself. And so I think in any work for collective liberation, it's also, you know, I'm, I'm seeking this liberation for myself and, and really feeling that I want others to also be able to show up fully as themselves. And so that's kind of on a, a broader stroke. I think at a, at a more practical level, my journey to be here started really in, in high school when I had a teacher that she was a Spanish teacher. And so we would practice the language in different ways and we would have debates. And so we were debating whether or not to build a wall at the U.S.-Mexico border. And so this was now, what, like 15 years ago, I'm aging myself. But at that time, I was very open about being for the wall. And I think, you know, what I saw in the news and what I heard and just kind of parroting other people in my life and my life and my friends was, you know, people are breaking the law. It's really cut and dried. It's really clear. So I was actually upset that we were even debating it. And so my teacher was really smart and she asked me to debate the other side. And she said, well, mm. you know, you clearly really understand that argument. So what I'd like you to do is research, you know, 
the other side? Why do you think people would say that we should not build this wall? And I was a good student and I didn't, I wanted to pass the class. And so I did the research and um, very much was challenged to read about reasons why people were coming. Um, And it made me think about the fact that I had no idea this other perspective. And I didn't, I didn't personally know anyone who had migrated. And so that was sort of a beginning of an opening, sort of a cracking open for me of what became a longer journey after I graduated high school, spent a couple of weeks with some sisters of charity in El Paso, Texas. And and from there just kind of snowballed. And I ended up teaching down there for a couple of years. And and then I was a community organizer with uh, mostly migrant faith communities in Indianapolis for a few years before I came here to the border. So that sense of, I, I feel like I'm still kind of living out that transformation that began at age 18. I'm still here, still being transformed. Wow, what a transformation story. I've had similar experiences. The word that came to mind when you were sharing experience, conversion experience, that we all have that kind of St. Paul transformation moment, especially when it's not our own lived experience. This moment when you had when you were 18, how did it impact your, your spiritual journey? Like how you see yourself in as a person of faith in the context of this larger mission? Yeah, I think, you know, that this experience, as you, as you talk about it as a conversion experience, that I'm still being converted, but I think it speaks to a bigger shift for me that I think many of us in our adult faith go through of moving away from legalism and, mm-hmm. and seeing the bigger picture of who God is outside of laws that we humans um, put on God. And so from, you know, God as this old white man <laughs> and emerging beyond that to this bigger version of God, I think it's, for me, it, it was one piece of that, one piece of moving beyond this, this legalism and, and actually learning to question and not assume that just because something is legal under the law, that that means that it's morally right. And so I think that was uh, an important awareness for me that I've continued to to grow into. And, and I've always loved to ask questions, but I think that there is this sense, especially in the U.S., of, you know, the law is number one. And so this this idea of what law and order is sometimes can be so twisted. For example, right now, I just talked to a woman this morning who approached the port of entry and requested asylum, which is a legal process, and she was denied. And so mm. sitting with that and recognizing that law is not the the ultimate good and, and the highest good in an ideal world, it would be. And that good laws do serve the common good. But the reality is, I think we have to, we have to learn to continually challenge that and question. And so I think that was part of that awakening for me. That idea that you framed so well of legalism is so much part of our culture. When you are doing this immigration advocacy work that you do, how do you humanize these narratives? I think that's the perfect word, actually, is humanize. And actually, in our education programming, we use the the acronym HAC, H-A-C. And for us, it stands for humanize, accompany, and complicate. And I think we do that in a number of ways. But one of the things I've been struck with in my work in advocacy realms is that so many times 
There are lots of conversations happening about migrants. I mean, we're doing it right now <laughs> where migrants' actual voices aren't included. And, and I'm so aware of that. And, you know, pretty early on when we started building up this Save Asylum campaign, which really started before I came on staff, we moved fairly quickly into being more binational and we recognized the need to shift from asking migrants to just come and share their stories to asking them to be more in the center of the decision making in in the movement. And for me, that was an important way of humanizing this. I think for me, I feel the humanization when I share the urgency that I'm bringing from migrants. And so it's it's so much different, you know, for elected officials to be like looking at a, a the text of a bill and numbers and data versus, you know, sitting across the table from Lisandro, who has now tried three times to present at the port of entry and been rejected despite bringing um, proof of vaccination, despite, despite talking about the persecution that he's lived. When you can visualize that face and you understand how these policies and decisions impact real people, that, that moves things into a whole different space. And I've been so grateful. I think I'm constantly learning. And we have this migrant organizing committee that has named themselves the, the revolutionaries, most revolutionarios, mm. which is beautiful. And um, right. I'm constantly learning from them not to accept less than what we deserve. And I think I think so many times we get into the cerebral space and advocacy where it's like, well, let's see what we can get. Let's see what's reasonable. Let's see what's politically possible. Well, you know, that's not our job as people of faith uh, to do the political calculation. Our job is actually to set the moral standard and say, this is what's right and we won't accept anything less. And I think often I've been sitting in meetings with them, with with senators and their representatives where they've just expressed their anger, saying with the Biden administration, for example, you promised us that MPP would end. (laughs) You promised us that you would reinstate asylum and you would reinstate a humane process. And here we are six months later, nine months later. And so that, for me, staying connected to the root of that and how this is affecting people's daily lives is just crucial for any of this work to really be be genuine and be rooted in reality. That's one of the main issues with the, with when we talk about immigration is we are, we're so quick to not address the flaws in policy and to critique the families and the people and their communities. On the same line, we recently had this act of solidarity on the border around Title 42. Can you explain like what Title 42 is and like, what the action was? Sure. So Title 42 is an authority that the federal government has in in a case of emergency to make decisions like closing off the border to people entering from other countries. So in in an ideal world, it would be used for public safety or for safety in general. And so that is an authority that the federal government has. Unfortunately, it's been abused and used as a pretext to keep migrants out. I can say that with confidence because for the last year and a half, I, as a white U.S. citizen, have crossed back and forth across the border maybe once or twice a week. And so I would say 70 times, 100 times. I've never been asked for proof of vaccination. I've never been asked for a COVID test. No one's ever taken my temperature. But because I'm a U.S. citizen, 
I can say I'm taking my dog for a walk. I can say I'm going on a hike or I'm going to the grocery and I get a free pass. Whereas people who are fleeing real danger, including folks that have actually been kidnapped here in Mexico, who have received death threats, who are fleeing just unbelievable situations in Mexico, Central America, and other places are told, you know, you you might bring COVID in, so you can't cross the border. Since March of 2020, that is how our ports of entry have been operating. And you can think about, you can imagine, you know, for me, it's something that I kind of joke about because uh, I live here on the Mexico side with a group of sisters um, from Mexico and we have a dog that was also born in Mexico. And sometimes I'll cross over to the U.S. and I'll, I'll bring the dog with me. And he's a Mexican dog, but he doesn't need a passport. He can just cross. And and so it's it's really laughable that this this dog that is Mexican can cross. But these human beings who are literally fleeing for their lives can't do the same thing. And so it's really a racist policy. It's a mm-hmm. it's a nod to white supremacy and it's a way that the government, first the Trump administration and now the Biden administration has kept it in place, basically said, oh, this is an opportunity for us to keep people out, keep people from accessing their right to asylum. And so so that's the reality we've been living in with um, hundreds and thousands of people fleeing all kinds of different situations, um, arriving to seek safety and protection and having the door you know, shut in their face. Um, despite their their legal right to to request that a prote- that protection, and so, you know, we've been since August of last year, um, we've we've gathered groups of people on both sides of the border to to do binational protests against this policy and and MPP while it was in action as well, and really trying to lift up folks' stories and recognizing that you know as COVID was happening and. You know, really, there was so much attention on that, and understandably so, because the pandemic has affected all of us. But at the same time, a lot of folks that were reading here, a lot of the migrants just felt really forgotten, ignored, just put to one side while all of this has been happening. And so we have felt that it's really important to bring two people together to bring this into the public. And and so this fall, we've gone through a few different waves of things. You know, when the Biden administration came in the beginning of this year, a lot of us were really pretty hopeful that we would start to see change because, you know, I think for maybe the first time ever, a president had actually made a promise in regards to asylum and lots of other parts of making immigration more just and humane. For about the first six months, we saw a couple of positive changes. We saw MPP come to an end. We saw a couple of processes for exceptions to Title 42 start to take shape. But then at the end of July, that all came to a halt. And so we started to realize that the promises that we had been waiting for weren't coming and that it was going to be more and more important for us to stand together and really speak out and and raise awareness, especially because so often the attitude in the U.S. is that, you know, what's happening at the border is separate from us, even though they are our U.S. policies that are causing pain and suffering and injustice. So we really felt this call to build a bridge between the border and especially these northern Mexico border towns and the interior of the U.S., where people really do have that power to make an influence in our laws and our policies. So we invited folks from across the country, many uh, different people of faith, 
to come down and accompany us. And the migrants started organizing, you know, their program and who was going to share. And there were a number of people who said, you know, we have the right to seek asylum. So we should just do that. We should present at the port of entry and we should request that and we should do it publicly so that people can really see exactly what's happening here. So they did. And we had, I was, you know, blown away because there were 25 families who signed up that wanted to participate in that. They wanted to present their case for asylum at the port of entry. We weren't sure what the response would be, but we also invited those faith leaders who came from other places to each accompany a family in in presenting at the port. And honestly, so we had this big action on September 25th. There were about six or 700 people on the Mexican side, about 100 people on the U.S. side. We had a march, and we heard from some of the different migrant leaders sharing their stories. And then we walked over to the port of entry to accompany them. And actually, the first person who presented at the port of entry, she was accompanied by the Bishop of Tucson. And, um, and you know, we, we had some sense because we had heard from lots of other migrants who had tried to present their case at the port who had not been given access to any kind of fear assessment or process. And so we, we thought that it was likely the families would, would similarly be rejected, but we were surprised because starting with this first family, they actually closed down the entire port of entry. And you can see it on the, the video that the Ignatian Solidarity Network has, has shared, and they, they documented pretty well the events of that day. So I think we were all surprised just how exaggerated that response was to have a mom with her, her children saying, you know, I, I really want to be heard. I need to seek asylum. I need protection. And as if she were really presenting some threat to them, closing down the entire port of entry. So this big iron gate comes slamming down and they actually had to pull a child out from underneath <sighs> down. Um, yeah. So that was, you know, we expected the rejection, but not at that level. So then, you know, we had to sort of huddle and decide where do we go from here? And so the other families, you know, as I was thinking through in my mind, okay, well, the port's going to be closed probably an hour. It was pouring rain. There's lots of little children. People are hungry. In my mind, I thought, well, this is, you know, people are going to say, let's go home. You know, we had a great march. Let's come back and try another day or something. But every single family, when we approached them to ask, you know, do you want to stay and and try? Do you want to wait and and try to present at the port, they all decided that they would, that they wanted to get in line and they wanted to wait to be able to do that. So it was just, it was a really, it was a really profound experience. Um, and I think, again, just grounding in people's real experience, you know, I think one of the dads said like, well, what else will we do? You know, this is why we're here. <laughs> this is what we're fighting for. So of course, we're going, we're going to stay. And and most of those families ended up presenting and the responses ranged from, you know, explaining Title 42 and we can't receive you right now. And, you know, an agent that was somewhat polite and responsive to, you know, towards the end, the agents simply were not responding at all. We're, we're not even making eye contact with the people who were sharing about their stories. So it was really hard, but I think it was it was important to really expose that rejection that's happening every day at ports across the border. And I think within that, you know, this this bigger vision that we have to pull back the curtain and make this make something that our government has worked really hard to hide and to make invisible and make that visible to people. And so I think in that way, it was it was really powerful. That continues to be our goal because the U.S. government, you know, what they're trying to do is externalize all of these processes 
so that, you know, if we can just make people wait in suffering on the Mexico side, if we can just, you know, send, have Mexico send troops to their southern border, if we can just keep this issue and the people that, that are fleeing and that are seeking protection out of sight and out of mind, then there won't be this public backlash. And they've been fairly successful in that strategy over the last, I don't know, eight years or so. The work that's ours to do is is the opposite of that. It's bringing people close. It's pulling back the curtain. It's making it really clear that these people are are our siblings and that we stand with them. Wow. So many things are going through my head right now as I'm listening to all of this. One question I have is, how often are asylum seekers rejected? Oh, I would say every day. You know, I don't have any way of documenting that, but I can say anecdotally, we hear from people regularly, I would say multiple times a week that come to to KBI, to our migrant center. And what's frustrating it is this work of access to asylum is a government responsibility. And yet the person who I spoke to today who approached the port of entry said that the, the CBP officer told her to go to Kino. And so just this complete denial of the responsibility that our government has to, right. to fulfill our own, own laws and to, and at a human level to provide protection. It's very frustrating. And, and I know of many people who have tried multiple times and it's not just at ports of entry, but it's also, you know, what this has created is since people know that there is no access at the ports, people are taking the risk to cross through the desert. So I talked to a woman this morning who crossed with her two children and she talked about just like, you know, sleeping out in the middle of the desert and she was with her husband, but then they got separated. And so she ended up being expelled. So when she was detained by um, border patrol, she told them, I'm seeking asylum. This is the second time I've asked for it and I really need protection. And she said that they simply didn't believe her and they just put her on a bus back to Mexico. And so Yeah, this is happening every day. How do you create a space in this work to restore or keep hope? Is there hope for individuals in this time? I think there is a lot of need for just encouraging one another and lifting one another up. I think the thing that brings me hope is that, you know, when we think about the backlash to some of the Trump immigration policies, There is a lot of support among the general public for migrants to have access to a humane process, both people who are already in the U.S. who don't have documentation and people who are are coming from other places. So that gives me hope. And it's, you know, it's the the interesting thing is we, we outnumber the opposition, really. So I think it's just a matter of bringing that out, of animating that in, in creative ways that can really make a difference. And And so often, I think what that looks like for us, because it has been painful, you know, when September 25th came and went, you know, the migrants, they were holding vigils every day for a week, and families were presenting at the port of entry every day for a week, and being rejected every single day. And you got to the point where I was like, you guys know we're going to be rejected, right? And you still want to do this. Okay, let's go. <laughs> but I think celebrating, like recognizing every step of progress that happens. And so, mm-hmm. one thing that's been kind of beautiful is seeing how migrants' voices have been amplified. And so, um, you know, we are preparing for actually on Monday, November 8th, um, the ports of entry at the border are opening to 
vaccinated, uh, non-essential travelers with visas, Mm -hmm. but they're still not opening to money seeking asylum. And so, you know, when that date was set, we, we met together and started talking about, okay, what do we want to do to respond to this? Um, and we started getting calls already from, from the press and from, um, media outlets wanting to know what are the migrants going to do on November 8th? And to me, that's something that we had to take a moment to celebrate because they have positioned themselves to really set the narrative about what's happening and what, what they deserve and, and what it is that they want to say to the public. And so it's not the win that we're going for, which is, you know, opening this process and beyond that humane and just immigration reform, which we're talking about, you know, right now we're looking at pathways to citizenship, but it is a step. It is something that they have won and that they have worked for. Um, so I think it's it's just absolutely crucial and just creating those spaces of celebration and of encouraging one another. So we had a rally yesterday and we had about a hundred migrants that that came in and we were practicing the chants and um, <laughs> the chant leader, uh, you know, we had kind of, we put our, our agenda together and he came forward to do some of the chants and, and he actually went into some kind of inspirational speech and asking people, you know, you know, we have to have hope and, you know, let's, I need to see your energy. And it was beautiful because it wasn't planned at all, but it was, I think it was just what everyone needed. And so you know, making space for people's gifts to shine through and to celebrate together and encourage one another and doing all of this in community is just absolutely essential. I think it's it's so easy to get discouraged. I mean, for me, that's one of the the gifts of religious life is everything I do, I don't do alone. And I can go home in the evenings and share with the sisters I live with, you know, if there was something really hard for me that day. Um, and that's what that's what lifts us up. That's what keeps us going. Yeah, I think it's really important to do justice work in a community setting. And I think it takes us also away from our individualism that we have in our society into the communal space that's necessary. And I find that it in these times, I mean, it is easy to get discouraged, but it's important, I think, to be lifted up by each other. Is there... A particular call uh, or action or actionable steps that you desire or would like to draw people to in this time? Yeah, I would say, you know, for folks that I know a lot of folks that might be listening to this did join for our call to action in September. And we're so grateful to see that outpouring of support. But for anyone who would be listening to this who hasn't done so already, um, to get on the phone and call their um, congressional rep and their senators and make sure that they know you want asylum to be fully restored, that you want Title 42 to end, and you want them to put pressure on the administration to do so. That's absolutely number one. Um, And the Ignatian Solidarity Network has put together a great... um, action alert that just has step-by-step instructions for exactly how to do that. I would say beyond that, you know, I spoke earlier to the issue of so many of these abuses being hidden um, and and the public just really not not being aware and and how intentional that that hiding is. Um, And so one thing that we've been working on quite a bit, what we do is 
is file abuses on behalf of migrants who have, have suffered some kind of abuse um, at the hands of a U.S. official being naive. But I, I want to believe that if if everyone in the U.S. knew the kinds of things that were happening in CBP custody, for example, if everyone in the U.S. knew that, um, you know, families that are crossing through the desert and being detained by CBP are spending, you know, seven days in these holding cells with these aluminum blankets and um, that CBP officials are actually using temperature as a as a punishment. And so I've heard from multiple families that when the kids get loud, they turn down the temperature as low as they can so that they feel cold and they stop making noise, which is the kinds of torture that people are experiencing behind closed doors. We have to expose this. And so one one concrete way to to make that happen would be through oversight. And so just yesterday, there was um, a new bill, the Border Accountability Oversight and Community Engagement Act that was put forward. And so we would definitely encourage folks to reach out to your senators and representatives that you want to see legislation that will provide resources for oversight to make sure that these abuses do not continue and to have some sense of accountability um, because otherwise things will continue the same way. And, you know, when when I saw the footage of the Haitians that were being, you know, beaten by Border Patrol on horseback, you know, my first reaction was, of course, horror. And my second reaction was, thank God that someone filmed that. Right. Because we know that those things are happening every day at times when no one has a camera and no one has a platform to make that public. You know, we hear stories about people being run over by border patrol on four wheelers, people being slammed to the ground, children in soiled diapers for days who are vomiting and don't get access to medical assistance. I could go on and on. So this has to come to light and we need oversight to make sure that these heinous and really torturous abuses don't continue. Yeah, I think exposure, um, exposing, bringing things to light is essential. Everything that you've been saying um, in this interview, the image that comes to mind has been Japanese internment camps, like the similar conditions or indigenous boarding schools. And I think that our government wants to, like you said, conceal it and not reveal, but you know, scripture even says that that's not true. What is, is done in secret will be brought to light. And and I think that is what uh, your, uh, the work that you're doing through KBI is doing that. I think it's, I think exposure is what, and telling of these stories um, is very um, important to do. So I thank you for doing this, this work. It's hard and, um, but also necessary. Um, one last question. What is, if, if you could have like a, and, and there's probably many dreams or imagining that you hold, but if you could have a, a particular like dream or vision or reimagining of our immigration system, like what is, what is something that perhaps you hold for the future? Man, if I could make it anything. <laughs> Um, yeah, my dream would be, let's start from scratch and begin with the common good in mind. Like if what we actually desired was 
the common good of people who have the need to migrate, what would we do? So I really think it it actually, we need to start with the philosophy behind what we're doing. And if we could get clear on that, then I think a lot of other things would fall into place because now it's so, it's so backwards. We are, you know, everything we do is geared toward deterrence. It's geared toward keeping people out. It's geared, it's motivated by fear and it's just so misguided for so many different reasons. And so I think, you know, I've, I've heard people comment to me that Mexico, especially before Trump got involved, had much more of a progressive immigration system. And they started from the, the thought that, you know, migrants are, migrants enrich, migrants bring new life and new gifts and skills. And so they said, well, what is it that we can do to encourage migration? Because we can see all of, all of the benefits and the ways that we're enriched by people who come from other places. So, you know, I think if we started with that kind of philosophy, it would just be a world of difference. So to me, you know, there's obviously there's a lot of nuts and bolts that need to come into play after that. But to me, over overhauling our entire philosophy would just be a powerful way to to really begin anew and, and to move toward what what we keep saying, what the Biden administration has promised and what we as, as Catholics believe is needed, which is something that's humane and, and dignified for people and honors their right to migrate. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this um, with us and getting us toward closer towards the mindset of prophetic action that we need to take. Thank you for the invitation. And I, I really feel that this, you know, this ministry and, you know, you all also bringing this to light, you know, this is also part of that ripple effect of pulling back the curtain of exposing and inviting people into solidarity. So thank you for creating that platform. Absolutely. Well, thank you for doing the work and sharing your, and sharing these essential stories. Because I think this is what we need to hear that these are human beings with inherent dignity, just like ours that need support and love and pathways to just migration. Mm-hmm. Well, and we certainly count on your prayers and the prayers of lots of other folks to keep the faith and to keep one step at a time moving forward. What's the best way that we can support your mission? Honestly, to me, and I know it's it's not an easy, uh, it's not an easy thing for some people, but just having conversations those grassroots conversations with people we know, we can have the most impact with people that we're already in relationship with. So, you know, for if each of us were to go, let's say, you know, 100 people, or just to give an example, if 100 people listened to this, and each of those 100 people went and talked to five individuals they know who might be on the fence or apathetic or just not really clear about what's happening at the border, then that's 500 people who who now can make an impact, who now are spurred to action in different ways. And so to me, you know, that's just such a huge first step. And of course you can always, you know, we always accept donations. You can go on our website, kinoborderinitiative.org and learn more about that. And, and I would also say, you know, looking at the big picture, we need to create welcoming communities. And that starts with conversations among the people that we know and love. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. 
You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. This podcast is a work of Intercommunity Peace and Justice Center in Seattle, Washington. IPJC is sponsored by 24 religious congregations. We act for justice in the church and in our world. If you would like to see more work like this, go to ipjc.org and consider supporting our mission. Make sure to hit that subscribe button for our podcast and to hear more conversations like this wherever you listen. Tune in next time.